I'm, uh, I'm ready. Uh, good afternoon and thank you to the Templeton Foundation and especially to Jan for inviting me here. I'm very happy to be uh, with all of you. For me, this is kind of a new occasion. I'm normally not exposed to so much analytical philosophy. And uh, I'm afraid my talk is going to be rather different. And I do hope you'll find it relevant to the topic of uh, confidence. I would like to briefly explain why I have chosen this topic. Generally, my research in uh, Buddhist philosophy focuses on the relationship between certain features of uh, the Buddhist philosophical idiom and how those features affect Buddhist philosophical argumentation. So with that as a starting point, I thought what can be taken from uh, English philosophical usage, linguistic usage, what can be learned and what can be applied to the integration of Madhyamaka philosophical concept into a new environment. And this is what I'm going to discuss. So I will start with pointing uh, to two different possible models of translation, the Tibetan model and the Southeast Asian model. Of course, there are other models like East Asian Buddhism, but I do not know any Chinese and therefore I do not feel confident to say anything about it. The Tibetan model, in my understanding, relies on etymology in the sense that it tries to reproduce, at least in part, uh, the relationship between the upasarga and dhatu, the prefix and the what we could call the verbal root. It does not always reproduce the value of the pratyaya, which is the suffix which determines partly, we could say, the syntactical value of the term and the relationship between the, the word as a whole and its dhatu, its verbal root. So, for example, all these terms which I'm listing here, Swasamvit, Swasamvitti, Swasamvedana, Atmasamvit, etc., and sometimes even Swasamvita and Swasamvedya can be translated in Tibetan with one and the same word. So, that means that although Tibetan is very precise, there are cases where it is difficult for Tibetan to reproduce some features of the Sanskrit original. And in some cases, those features are significant. And Tibetan, with a very few exceptions, does not rely on the integration of Sanskrit terms. If we look at another model, on the other hand, the, the Southeast Asian model, we see that it does rely heavily on integrating a number of technical terms from Sanskrit and Pali. And I'm going to argue that the second model could be somewhat uh, a better way to follow for someone who's translating from Sanskrit into English. In other words, I believe that the choice of integrating some terms could be advantageous, while an attempt to create a very consistent philosophical language in English to reproduce the original Sanskrit might have some drawbacks. And I have uh, briefly mentioned some of uh, some features uh, of English, which I feel make it more akin to the Southeast Asian model. 
and uh, somewhat incompatible with the Tibetan model. It is difficult, I feel, in English to rely at least heavily on etymology in order to choose a translation for a Sanskrit technical term. Because the match between etymology and usage normally doesn't work. And so I think that rarely we can really rely on etymology when choosing which term to use to translate a certain philosophical key term from the Sanskrit. English, though, has an advantage, which is it already integrates terms from a variety of languages. In other words, it, the roots of English are varied. They do include Greek, Latin, etc., but there are lots of terms from Asian languages, even African languages in English, and these should be taken into account when deciding whether or not to integrate a Sanskrit term into English. And I would like to point out that contemporary English does not have an exclusive relationship with Greek or Latin. In other words, if we decide to coin a new term, of course, we could do it from the Greek, but we don't have to do it from the Greek. There were reasons why that was desirable perhaps 200 years ago, but the situation has changed. And so I believe that introducing some Sanskrit terms should not be so controversial or problematic. Uh, some Madhyamaka terms that we can integrate are, is the topic of uh, the next part of the discussion. Now, what is the purpose of integrating some Sanskrit key terms? Enriching the English philosophical vocabulary with terms from different philosophical cultures, in, in this case from Madhyamaka, terms which are difficult to render by a single expression in English. Now, I have noticed that actually we already do that. I have observed that very often we use the word swabhava. Rather than relying on some translation, that's a shortcut. It facilitates our understanding. So the question is, why not just integrate Swabhava and slowly understand it as a meaningful philosophical term in English? I feel that this will facilitate a more natural development of Madhyamaka thought in an English-speaking environment. By this I mean that if Swabhava as a term and as a concept becomes more integrated in an English-speaking environment, philosophers who may not specialize in Buddhist philosophy, will have one more tool available to them, and when they do decide to read a Madhyamaka text, even in translation, they will already be familiar with one of the key philosophical concepts of Madhyamaka. Some examples of terms which I feel it is worth integrating, Dharma, Pramana, Paramartha, Samvriti, Karaka, and Swabhava. Now, at the very least, the term dharma is a term which I would say is already an English word. And if we start looking at the history of the usage of dharma in English, it is older than one might think. And I think that modern English dictionaries do offer a list of uh, meanings of dharma, which include something like phenomenon. So they do not only list dharma in the sense of a religious system or duty, etc. They also often mention that dharma can mean a phenomenon. Pramana, 
this is a list of possible meanings of pramana. I think you're already familiar with all of this. It can refer to the instrument, the agent, or the action itself. This is one point which I think is significant. It can refer to a philosophical genre. It can refer to the result. It can refer to the instrument and the result at the same time. It can refer to the logical ground, so it can be a synonym of hetu, and there are more meanings of pramana as well. What are the drawbacks of not integrating uh, philosophical terms? It is often impossible to find consistent translations. Now, one could think that, oh, this is not a big drawback, but actually, I think it is a drawback. And one reason is that usually more than one meaning is relevant in the very same context. And we lose the link. If we use different terms to translate the very same words, sometimes we, the reader will not perceive a link between these different meanings, and the link sometimes is significant. Now, I will discuss some examples as well. Let's say we translate pramana with valid cognition. I personally do not like this translation much because I feel it works only when we refer to a very specified philosophical group. So this is as if we had a debate about uh, what is the most beautiful town on earth? And I think it is Ban Mai. And they express it in a certain language. And then the most beautiful town on earth is translated with the word Ban Mai, because that is what I'm referring to. But in that case, we would get a translation like Ban Mai is Ban Mai for the sentence, the most beautiful town on earth is Ban Mai. So similarly, if I decide to translate pramana with valid cognition, since this is just the idea of a certain philosophical group, if we then have to translate a text where that group or someone else is saying uh, pramana is valid cognition, I would actually get the translation, valid cognition is valid cognition, which says nothing. And also this hides that there is a debate about the meaning of this term. So even if we choose valid cognition in the context of that specific philosophical group, the debate becomes hidden. The reader will not be able to perceive that there might have been other meanings in other traditions. Another translation which I found is instrumentality, but I think this translates practically only the pratyaya, which is only the suffix and also excludes some of the other meanings of the, that suffix. So I think there are at least two uh, major drawbacks for that. And similarly, uh, epistemic instrument, although it takes into account the meaning of the verbal root, selects one of the possible senses of the suffix. So it's a selective translation. So my conclusion is pramana is a three-syllable word. For me, definitely no more difficult to pronounce or remember than dilithia or metabasis is allogenos, which are used by Western philosophers and retained in Greek. And this has already been done. It has been done with terms like sandhi. So if we take the term sandhi, this is used in linguistics. And I think that was a wise choice. 
I think that if we do something similar with some of the terms that I've listed, this will be advantageous to a better understanding of Madhyamaka in an English-speaking environment and uh, for its development. I actually had some examples that I have lost. So, okay, the examples are here. I want to talk about some further examples. Regarding Tibetan, there are cases where it's actually impossible in Tibetan to reproduce what is happening in the Sanskrit, and it is significant. For example, in the Jnana Lokanankara Sutra, there is this uh, unique term, Tathattvam. But Tathattvam is uh, considered to be a contraction of Tathatha plus Tattvam. So the Tattvam of Tathatha is Tathattvam. It's just a contraction. Because there we have the two uh, suffixes, Ta and Twa, it's impossible to reproduce that in Tibetan, because both of them get translated with nit. So a Tibetan reader would completely miss that. Th that is one example. Another example is cases where we have uh, explanations of words which specify the relationship between the suffix and the verbal root. I will give an example. Uh, the definition of alankara. You probably know this word, I think so. It's uh, uh, what completes, and it often refers to an ornament. Now, one of the definitions is alamkritihi alankara. I don't think this can be reproduced in Tibetan. So thi but this is a convention in Sanskrit, which I understand as saying that the action of completing is the alankara, as opposed to alamkriyate anena iti alankara, which is a convention to say that the instrument of making complete is alankara. So this kind of analysis is difficult to reproduce in Tibetan. This is one of the things that Tibetan cannot do. And uh, regarding Southeast Asian languages, I haven't given you examples, and I should. Well, I live in Thailand, so my examples are from the Thai. I teach in a Mahavidyalaya, so that's what a university is. My, uh, my faculty is called Ghana. Our dean is called Ganapati. <laughs> and our faculty is uh, the faculty of Sangama Shastra. Which? Sangama Shastra? Uh, it means uh, social sciences. And I'm in the, <laughs> in the subdivision of uh, Manushya Shastra, humanities. <laughs> Ethical studies is Charya Shastra. <laughs> and other universities' names are Chudalankara Mahavidyalaya. The, the province where I live is Nandapuri. But we see some very interesting usages of apparently philosophical terms in day-to-day -day life in Thailand, like the word tammata, dharmata. Actually, the way that word is used sometimes <coughs> is that if I go and order some roti and I want the plain one, 
That is the Roti Dharmata. So I think that that's a good thing in the sense that there's uh, several terms, of course, they end up being used in a slightly different way and I believe that I'm aware if some terms like Swabhava, Pramana, etc. are integrated into English, they will acquire new meanings as well, but I don't think this is a drawback. And I do think that the, the example of Thai is a rather good example. I said Southeast Asian languages because I believe the same works for uh, uh, Lao, Khmer, probably Burmese, Shan, uh, Bahasa, which indeed is called Bahasa. Uh, if, you, if you go to Malaysia and uh, there's a danger, the danger is called Bahaya, which indeed is useful because normally we think of the Sanskrit word Bahaya as referring mainly to fear, while I think that its primary meaning is indeed danger. And these usages, even in uh, modern languages, sometimes help us even understand some of the Sanskrit usages. But for our purpose, which is the development of Madhyamaka, I do think that linguistic choices have an impact on philosophical development. And I do think that linguistic choices which favor clarity and ease of communication, such as the choice of uh, retaining the word Swabhava, for example, are going to have a beneficial effect on the uh, development of Madhyamaka thought in an English-speaking environment. Now, I don't have the time. I don't know whether I've spoken too little or too much. Unfortunately, I'm not very good at... Uh, how much have I spoken? Have I spoken for 20 minutes? Okay, thank you. <laughs>